My name is Jonah. I'm a pastor, activist, community organizer, and follower of Jesus. I love the Bible, but I've been told it doesn't love me back. Enter the peacock. An ancient symbol of abundance, the peacock is more than beautiful. It serves as a guard animal around the world because it eats poisonous spiders and snakes. How does it survive? Peacocks can break down poison, get to the good stuff, and emerge fed and strengthened. Some say this is how the peacock gets its beautiful iridescent feathers. Join me and my guests as we read the Bible in the spirit of the peacock, re-encounter nourishing scriptures that have been poisoned by hate and ignorance, break down toxic theology, and get to the good stuff. Emerge fed and strengthened with a beautiful, iridescent faith. Welcome to Jonah and the Peacock, a podcast about poison, healing, and the Bible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jonah and the Peacock, a podcast about poison, healing, and the Bible. My name is Jonah P. Overton. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I am your host. On season one of this podcast, we are going to be spending a lot of time storytelling and really digging into the ways that our identities and the stories we tell about who we are shape the stories we tell about God and can be really liberating to the scriptures that have been used against so many of us as a way to unlock what the scriptures actually are, a gift for our liberation, for our joy, for our spiritual healing. And so today in our first full episode, um, you will hear a conversation between me and Derek Scott III. He is one of our producers here at the podcast. And Derek uh, graciously gave me some space to talk about my own story, my own identity, and the ways that that has shaped my relationship to scripture. Because my story is um, intense and deep, we, we dive right in. And so I want to give a little bit of a content warning right off the top. We talk about um, a lot of my own trauma. And there is a mention of childhood abuse. There's no explicit details on that. Uh, but there is a more explicit discussion of my history with substance abuse, specifically um, my struggle with IV heroin addiction. And so know at the top that there is some discussion about that drug abuse. Um, but we, you know, we get to talk about the fullness of my story, which includes a lot of things that are known already publicly about me, that I'm a queer and trans person, that I'm a, um, a pastor and a deeply spiritual and religious person, but also some things that I've never really talked about publicly before, uh, my childhood trauma, making sense of some of the suffering and hopelessness I experienced as a child and adolescent, and the ways that that actually intersected with my journey toward my self-discovery related to sexuality and gender, and how all of that really uh, interacted with my spirituality and my faith in God. So, you know, we, we got to talk a lot about spirituality as an avenue for healing trauma and the way um, that different theologies and how we talk about God can really impact whether the church and scripture is healing or harming. For me, I, I really needed to re-encounter the healing powers of spirituality, of relationship with God and Jesus, the healing powers of the scriptures in order to find who I was. Um, but I do uh, name that that was a miracle and that I was really lucky for that. And so, you know, I, I'm grateful to Derek for this conversation that we got to just really dive into all of those things 
and uh, and ultimately then have a conversation about the peacock, which is an image that's incredibly close to my heart as as uh, an animal who sort of symbolizes the the way that we can transform uh, trauma and poisonous muck um, into beauty and power. Um, and then we re-encounter the story of my namesake, Jonah and the whale, um, first from the lens that I had originally, which was a pretty oppressive and limiting one. Uh, and then we re-encounter it from a liberated lens uh, in light of my story and who I am and who I understand God to be. So thank you for coming along on this journey with us as we uh, di- dive into my story, the story of Jonah and healing trauma. So tell me, Jonah, um, about, and, and let, let, we don't have to be super succinct, but, you know, give me sort of this like overview of your, your journey. And I'm particularly interested in hearing how faith and queerness has intersected for you and brought you to this space that you're yeah. in right now. Yeah. You know, I feel extraordinarily lucky because I don't have some of the spiritual trauma and church trauma of so many of my peers. Uh, But I do have a lot of other kinds of trauma and that folded into my identity and my experience of God really early. So, um, so I grew up in Chicago and um, my dad was in seminary when I was born. So he was training to be a pastor in the, in kind of a mainline Protestant denomination Um, he was Lutheran. He still is Lutheran. (laughs) We are a (laughs) multi-denominational family now. Um, but, but yeah, so he was, you know, he's in training to become a pastor, my mom's school teacher. Um, and I grew up in the city of Chicago, you know, surrounded by a lot of different types of communities and trying to figure out who I was. And uh, I had, I had some, uh, some trauma and abuse that happened outside of my immediate family, but in my extended family from from like day one. And so having complex trauma that began um, really early on in my childhood made living really complicated. I didn't quite know what to do with the fact that like I had learned very early that the world could be cruel and painful and dangerous. That's something that you're kind of supposed to learn slowly over time, I think. But I learned it very early. And it definitely impacted my relationship to God. So, you know, by the time I was seven, we, we had these Easter vigils that we would do every year. So Good Friday, we're remembering Jesus on the cross. And we would hold at my church these vigils 24 hours until, or, you know, however many hours between 3 p.m. on Friday um, remembering the crucifixion and then sunrise on Easter morning. Someone would be at the church praying at all times. And my family really liked to cover these late night shifts. Um, didn't li- liked is maybe a stretch, right? Had to, had to cover these late night shifts because it was hard to get people to come at two in the morning to the church. And my parents would go, and I always requested to go with them, um, which was 
unusual as a little kid. But I would go with them and and I'd sit in the pews and I would stare up at the cross and there was something that I connected to at that early age around suffering. And there was something just like really heartbreaking um, about the suffering of Jesus for me as a kid that I, I connected to and related to. And it and it it felt painful. It felt like a way to dwell in my own grief. Like for one moment in the church calendar year, I was able to say things are just horrible. They just beat him and stabbed him and left him to die. And I can be with him in that. And he's with me in my pain. And like that's heavy for a little kid. Um, but that's, that's where I was. And that was what... Um, that was one of the things that really anchored me in my faith, especially because one year I remember just crying. I was sitting on the pew and just crying and staring up at the cross. And there is a candle, the Christ candle, which is in some traditions, it's a candle that's lit all the time, except during this like 72 hour period. So it shouldn't have been on, <laughs> but either it was on or it wasn't on. I don't know. But, but I was looking at a flame and I, I saw it and felt it just like glow brighter and I felt this intense connection with the Holy Spirit that God was with me. And just that, that intense feeling of presence in my little kid self, in my suffering and the suffering of Jesus on the cross, I felt connected and held in that moment that, you know, Jesus can cry out and say, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, I haven't, but it does feel that way, doesn't it? And so that, that, really shaped, that really shaped my experience of faith um, and my connection to God. Now, meanwhile, I was engaging in a, a mainline Protestant denomination in a church that was kind of dying. Um, and so it was pretty liturgical, but also um, kind of lifeless. And so I didn't really connect at church, but I had this deep spiritual connection to God. And then at home, there was active conversations about the stories of the Bible and prayer, and that was really beautiful and anchored this kind of personal connection I had with God, and lots of talk about justice and solidarity and liberation. I'll probably get into it some other time, but um, a hugely impactful part of my uh, childhood in terms of understanding what it means to follow Jesus was seeing my dad go to El Salvador when I was a small child to um, to be in solidarity with folks who were being targeted by the death squads and the and fundamentally at, at some level the U.S. government and learning that to follow Jesus meant maybe going into some very dangerous spaces because solidarity with Jesus is solidarity with the poor solidarity with Jesus is solidarity with the marginalized and oppressed and salvation includes liberation in a meaningful material way here on earth in addition to the promises of eternity. And so, you know, I had this like great mishmash of like personal relationship with God and the presence of the Holy Spirit, political analysis of Jesus as our liberator. I didn't have a strong connection to church, but the other thing that I know I'm incredibly lucky to have was queer adults who were not only Christians but clergy because my dad had become close with some queer uh, folks in seminary. 
and they were closeted at the time um, because it was dangerous, but, but I had those adults in my life. So all of that was really formative in my childhood um, and shaped how everything else played out, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Wow. And I'll just stop there because I, otherwise I don't know how to, I'll just keep going. <laughs> wow. So at what point did it seem to be okay for you to be queer and also called? Yeah, so it's interesting. I never thought that there was anything wrong with being queer on Jesus' part, right? Like, I was like, oh, God's got this, Jesus has this. But I also witnessed, um, I also witnessed that it was really difficult for the queer clergy and and just queer people in my life. And I, I was so blessed to have queer adults in my life and they weren't like super close to me but they were in my world um but I also saw it was really hard uh that they faced a lot of discrimination that they had to be closeted some of them were married and living in different places for fear of losing their jobs so I thought what a horrible way that the world is treating those people um and I remember um I remember assuming my heterosexuality and and even thinking while I was still kind of stuck in that space, I hope that I never have queer children because it seems like it would be a hard life. And that's like how deep my own denial ran. And it's interesting to me that like even without some of the direct, cruel, hateful messaging in my, you know, that so many people get from their own families, even without that, I very much internalized that it was not, it was not pleasant to be queer, it was not easy to be queer, and it was not something that was desirable in any way. And so when I was like, I don't know, probably 12 and on the bus, and I looked over at one of my childhood friends and just thought she looked really beautiful. I was like, fuck. <laughs> and, and I think like I had that moment with that friend and then just kind of shoved it down and shoved it down. And my queerness is broad. Um, my queerness is about sexuality, but also gender. And so as a non-binary trans person and as a... Um, as a queer person in my sexuality, like there are a lot of things that I can just sort of slide myself sideways into. And it's, it's not a good fit, but it's sort of like, I can, I can pretend enough to kind of skate by. So I just did a lot of that in middle school and early high school. But by the time I was a, I was in my kind of mid adolescence, I, you know, I, I fell in love with my, my quote unquote best friend. I mean, we all so many of us had best friends, um, and I did too. And and it was just really strange because I had more of an emotional connection with that person who also subsequently came out as non-binary. And, but I still was performing um, femininity in my gender publicly and then um, heterosexuality in some of my 
my like public spaces and dating life. But it was one of those things where, you know, we were living together, me and my bestie. And we were both, both AFAB, both trying to like pass and figure out our lives. Um, and we'd go out with our boyfriends or whatever, and then we'd come home to each other and, you know, lie in bed singing the cure to each other because we were those kind of gays. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was, it was an interesting time, uh, uh-huh. to say the least, but I, I started to, um, I started to open up to that right at the time that I also was really, um, losing my grounding, uh, in, in terms of mental health, but also like worldview. I was in college, I was studying philosophy. Uh, I had realized that I didn't really have a ton of faith in God in the way that I had grown up with. And it was one of those things where like, I think I had a memory, a sense memory in my body that I, I longed for. I remembered that there was something there that I felt in that sanctuary, you know, with the cross and with the candle, I knew that something was there, but I couldn't connect to it anymore. And I felt so alone and so empty. And, and I thought, you know, I just, I can't make myself believe in God if I, if I just don't. So I kind of, I let myself slide into that and just sort of said, you know, I, I would always, I wish that I could believe, but I don't. And I'm going to accept that about where I'm at right now. Um, but then, you know, also that's when some of the trauma from my childhood really started to become unbearable in my body. Um, and I didn't have the resources to, to unpack it or heal from it. And so I was feeling really lost and, uh, was surrounded by a lot of other trauma babies and, and we were, we were all just so queer and so traumatized and in philosophy school and like it was. <laughs> It was a, it was a very volatile combination, um, and so we got really heavily into drugs and, and just kind of reckless and suicidal behaviors. Um, and so by the time I was sixteen, well, so I went to college a little bit early. So I was in college by sixteen, and by the time I was seventeen, in this in this group of friends who were all trying to find our own way, um, I was a daily IV heroin user. Mm. and Mm. uh it was what simultaneously it was what I was doing to to test the the boundaries of of death because I was so depressed that I didn't know if I wanted to live and also it was what I was doing to try and stay alive to just sort of numb my whole being and my spirit in particular enough to get through to the next day um so Mm. the space that that kind of allowed me to experiment with some pieces of identity and queerness and, and gender didn't even enter the conversation yet. Um, but, but that space that allowed me to, to kind of play with those things also was just riddled with really dangerous and unhealthy coping mechanisms. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, it was a really ugly, ugly time in my life. Um, and a really necessary one. I, every time I kind of review my own biography, I'm like, I don't know, I don't know how else it could have gone. Um, but I do remember I was, um, 
my relationships were flailing. You know, they were all really dysfunctional. And sometimes I knew that enough to put up boundaries. Sometimes they knew that enough to put up boundaries with me. And um, I was starting to disconnect from that community. But the only thing that I came away with was the heroin. <laughs> so that was not, uh-huh. not great. Uh-huh. Um, but I knew that that was destroying me too. And um, so I started having conversations with my dad again about God. And, and I was like, how do you, how do you make sense of this? One of the ideas that I had the hardest time with was original sin. Because don't get me wrong, I, I felt like a piece of shit. And I understood why theology could emerge that says like, hey, hey there, piece of shit. It's cool. It's sort of baked into the system. And like, it, that's not a barrier to God's love for you. Um, so I understood that as a logic, but it wasn't enough for me because I thought if I am as terrible as I feel, why, why would I want to continue in this? But if there is something good in me that I can cultivate, then that's work that I can do. And so I, I kind of pressed my dad about that, you know, was I made to be just this garbage human? And he presented a different kind of theology and a different interpretation of, you know, our origins and said, you know, what if, what if instead of original sin, we thought about original blessing? And he introduced me to Matthew Fox, who was a former Catholic priest and wrote a lot about this. And there's huge theology of the Holy Spirit in there, which I connected with immediately. Um, But again, this was all still intellectual. So I was like, okay, maybe God made us with purpose and intention and blessed us with enormous resiliency and resources. And I'm not at the core a pile of garbage. I am a good and holy created being who is suffering and struggling and repeating patterns of harm and that felt like an intellectual foothold that felt important but my spirit still hadn't caught up I still couldn't believe and so I was continuing to self-harm and and you know use heroin and whatever and one day I was really in a low spot I was um I had picked up heroin after work like like you do got uh-huh. off my shift went to go pick up I was standing on the the platform at the L and uh and I was desperate I mean the the way that I used heroin was to just shut down everything it was like turning the the volume down on my entire personhood um and I I even learned I guess I'll back up from this train platform for a second there was a time that I overdosed and I learned through that experience that um, when you overdose on heroin, it, it just, it literally takes the air out of your body. It slows down your respiratory system and you stop breathing and then you die. Um, and m- the people that I was with found me um, somewhere in that process and did rescue breathing and we had naloxone and, and so I survived, but I, I knew in that moment that it was the very breath of God that was, oh. was, that I was suppressing when I used heroin. Um, I, again, back to that Genesis story, you know, it's the breath of God that, that forms, that goes into the clay and makes us whole and human. It's the divine breath of God that is animating us into life. And that was what I was suppressing because it was so painful to be alive. Oh. And so 
on this on this L platform, it's so painful to be alive in that moment that I can't anymore, and I can't, and I can't, and I can't. And I have my heroin, I have my kit, and the train comes, and I, I'm, I know I'm not going to make it home. And so I, I find a train car that's relatively empty. There's these these spots in the back of certain cars where there's a little tiny partition and one seat. And so I beeline for that. And, and I mix up my shot on the train. And I'm like, I can't, I can't bear it. I can't, the pain of being alive is too much. And I'm mixing up my shot and I'm watching myself like pull out my needle and set up to, to, to shoot up in this public space. And I know that it's, I know that I'm like, so desperate and this feels so awful and I hear myself shout out to Jesus where the fuck are you and then the heroin hits my system and the volume on everything turns way down and I can't feel anything anymore and I'm so emotionally detached and all I have left is just like a little bit of logic in the back of my brain going well that's really weird I didn't know that I believed in God, but I seem to be pretty angry. And, and that was a, a huge turning point for me because I thought this whole time I have felt like I didn't believe in God and I just couldn't make myself believe in God when in fact I just feel so abandoned that I couldn't face that feeling. But there is something there. My spirit knows that Jesus is real, that God is real enough to feel betrayed. And as, as depressing and difficult as that sounds, that actually was something to go on. Because I knew that that belief was there and I knew that I could lean into it and explore it and, and, and dive in. And so, so I did. I, I realized pretty quickly that... Um, that heroin was not going to help me get there. And so I started, I started praying on a regular basis. I started engaging with some church folk. And, and I got to a point pretty quickly after that moment on the train where I was like, okay, if I'm going to be alive, I have to put my whole self into this. I don't know if I want to be alive. I don't know if I can be alive but I'm going to try and I'm going to pursue whatever that feeling is, whatever this beef is between me and God, it's, it's what I'm going to go on. And I, so I, I negotiated with God cause that's how I do it. It's, it's not something I recommend, <laughs> but <laughs> yes. it's what I did. And so I said, okay, God, you got six months. I will give you six months and I will pursue you with everything I have for six months. And if at the end of six months, I still feel like I want to die, I'll go back to doing the heroin. Surely I will die after not too long. I mean, I had already lost friends. Um, but I, until that, I will give six months of uninterrupted pursuit of Jesus. I dropped out of college. Uh, I, I asked my parents for support. They super super gracious and loving they they invited me back into their home they you know got me on their insurance going to rehab um and I was like yes yes I will do all of that I know that the heroin is a problem but the real the real task at hand is Jesus so I'll I'll go to I'll go to rehab during the day but I need to get connected to church um and community at night and on the weekends 
And that's what I did. Um, so that, that began uh, a totally different chapter in my life. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I should keep going or. (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll move us to a very specific angle, but oh my gosh, Jonah, that story. It's so the story of salvation. I mean, ah, yeah. And, uh, mm, I, I'm just having a bit of a moment, so. Yeah. Well, so part of the reason I set all that up is because what what then happens is I find a, a community that roots me in practice and scripture and prayer and love and worship that then tells me that I can't be queer um, and, tell, and, and shoves me deeper and deeper into the closet with my queerness and my, my transness. So it's a whole roller coaster. <laughs> Tell me just a little bit about that experience then, like yeah. how on one hand you're being rooted, but at the same time, you're also being pushed further into the closet. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, so, so when I was exploring, I, I found pretty quickly when I was kind of pursuing this intimate relationship with God, that some of those spaces from my childhood, particularly that liturgical den- uh, denominational space, just, it wasn't for me. Um, I could see its beauty, I could see its value, but it, it just wasn't working for me. But what I did find quickly was a group of young people, um, mostly in their early 20s, who were part of a church plant that was charismatic and evangelical. And a lot of them were in recovery too, which was super helpful. But we would worship in this elementary school auditorium and the lights were low, and the music was really good, and the prayer was always extemporaneous, um, which is to say, just like off the dome, and it was just, Uh there was this energy, this freedom of movement that felt so Holy Spirit to me. I was like, we're going to start this service, and we have no idea where it's going to take us, but it's going to take us somewhere, and I think that there was something about that, the idea that like, a liturgical service is beautiful in part because it takes you on a really intentional journey. But when you don't have that liturgy, when you are following instinct and worship and the spirit, it could go in so many directions. It could go in the same direction over and over again. You might sing the chorus to a song, you know, 19 times, who knows, or you could um, abandon that moment altogether and, and end up on your knees and praying um, with words. And and all of that made me capable of surrendering to God in a really powerful way. And uh, I started praying with this one woman one time, and while she was praying with me, I, I sort of had this kind of like, I don't know, it's like um, it felt like a, like a, a lucid dream while I was awake 
Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and my my drug addict self was like, I'm having visuals. Um, <laughs> Cause that's the only way I could think about it. But like, I just, I felt, you know, I, it was, I, I'm a really image driven, metaphor driven person. And so I, I could see, I could see what God was doing and how God was with me in those moments while she was praying for me. And I told her about that and she's like, we got to start doing this regularly. And she would pray over me and pray over me. And I would, uh-huh. I did this kind of healing meditative work, um, and connected me to God. And it was so beautiful and so powerful. And during that time, the, the preachers from the front and the culture throughout the entire community was deeply misogynistic and queerphobic. Oh. And I had come up with these like progressive or liberationist or radical Christians who had really sound theology and biblical reading. And then in my adolescence had gone to philosophy school and you know learned how to spot a bad argument. And so I'm looking at this and they're saying all of this stuff and I'm like, you're just wrong. Like I, I can follow you on the Holy spirit. I can feel embedded in this community. I just, I think you're reading the book wrong <laughs> about these things. Um, and I think that you're creating a structure of inequality and oppression and I'm not about it, but I needed, I so badly needed that connection to community and to God that they were facilitating that I just started to compartmentalize it. Uh-huh. And I was like, that's just not for me. It's whatever. And I did that for years. And looking back, I see how every time I had to compartmentalize or say, well, I'm going to put that over here or, um, that's not for me. I also, I had to, I had to take one, I had to step one inch back into the closet. And I didn't even know at that time how, how deep my closet was, um, and how much of me it covered because not only was I queer in my sexuality, but I was queer in my gender. And, uh, and so I had to keep performing something else in order to stay in that space. And I basically said, well, fine, it's none of your business. It's not even what I'm trying to explore right now. I'm just trying to stay clean and love Jesus. These are my goals. Um, and, and within a few months, definitely within that six month time frame that I gave God, I was getting baptized and I, and I was getting a tattoo uh, of Ruach, the, you know, Holy Spirit over my track marks. Yeah. And I was saying, yeah. I can do this. I want to be alive and I want to be with Jesus and I can do this. And yet those little pieces of me were just more and more, um, just in a, in a stranglehold, um, at the very back of my being. So it, it took me years after that. I, um, I was going into social movement work. I, I became a community organizer um, eventually and then a church planter. But throughout that journey, I knew that I needed, um, I knew that I longed for a theological education because I was like, I think everybody's wrong here about this, but I don't really know how to talk about it and I'd like to get better theology. And so I did. Um, I went to grad school after college. Um, I was in a dual degree program, so I have a, a social work degree and, um, and I was in, the, I was studying theology at, at a different school nearby, um, in this kind of tandem program. And I, I started to go, okay, there, there are tons of believers and theologians and faithful people who have a different worldview, 
But in those spaces, it wasn't my worship culture. And I could go to these, it was a Lutheran school I ended up going to, and chapel was beautiful. And the prayers were so, they were like poetry. But it wasn't my worship culture. It was Uh so bright in there. (laughs) And everybody was was sitting politely in their seats with their hands clasped. And everybody Uh knew the words to say at the right times. And no one was speaking out of turn because they caught the spirit. And I... I just wasn't home. Um, So I started to try and find other communities. But by that point, I was like, I can't handle the the theology anymore. I know this is harming me. I was starting to come to terms with my queerness. Um, Not my transness. That was still too hard. But, you know, in my early 20s, I was like, well, I just, I can't be around this toxic theology anymore. And so for years, I drifted without a home. I was without a spiritual home or or community. And I was a community organizer at the time. I was working with more than 70 congregations across the city of Chicago doing justice work. Uh And I didn't feel like I could be completely myself, completely at home and fed by God at any of them. Even though they were all beautiful communities, um, there was not a space for me. And, uh, And that was really painful. Until one day on the L, back on that L, a lot has happened for me on those trains. Yeah. Um, I saw, I saw an ad, um, and it was something pretty innocuous. It was like "Gay or straight, you're welcome here," um, Urban Village Church, and yeah. and I started to look into it, and it turns out it was a church plant, another another place where the spirit was breaking into the church structures and the and the world of church with new energy and new life. But this church plant was led by, in part, by queer people. Oh. Um, it was a church planting team, um, two, uh, two cisgender white men, um, one straight, one gay. And one of them was from the South as well, and so brought some of that kind of, um, just a different, a different energy that felt a lot more familiar to me in worship. And it wasn't, it wasn't everything, it wasn't quite me, but oh, it was so freeing to see queer people being queer in a space where you could, in worship, throw your hands up to God during, you know, during the service, during the song. So starting to feel a little bit at home in this new church environment made me kind of imagine the possibilities of what it, what it could mean to bring my whole self to worship, which is what I had longed for because I basically got to the point where I was like, well, I am not whole if I'm not whole. I mean, I know that sounds silly, but like I can't come before God with some parts of myself in the closet. I can't do it. And you know what? I actually don't feel like my fullest self when I'm in queer space that's secular and I feel like I have to hide my faith. And I don't feel like my full self when I'm in the streets with radicals fighting for what I believe is the kingdom and not able to talk about my Jesus who brought me there. And so all of these pieces the, the work for liberation, my queerness and, and gender identity, um, and my love for Jesus, these things felt like they were warring with each other or like I could only bring one to the surface and everything else had to kind of step back into the shadows. And to suddenly be in this church space that would join me in the streets, that's actually how I met them um, more fully, was I, I became one of their community organizers. And so I brought them out in the streets and they were happy 
to be able to live out their faith in that way. And then they would preach about Jesus from queerness and queer space. And we would all throw our hands in the air and say, amen. And I thought, this is impossible. I don't know how this is happening. And it was in that space as well that, um, that I started to more freely identify as queer. And that really started a cascade in me of like, how far does this queerness extend for me? Because it certainly is central to my sexuality, but it's more central to my gender. Um, that my gender has always been boundary breaking and, and norm violating. And, and it was some of those evangelical spaces that I treasured so much for bringing me into relationship with God that also then subtly, but repeatedly and over and over and daily policed my gender. And sometimes it was through affirmation. I mean, I would, I would show up to a space pretty masculine most of the time. And then, you know, one of my friends would say like, oh, let me get you these earrings. I think they'd look really great on you. Or like, let's go shopping or whatever. And then I'd show up to a space presenting more feminine and everyone would be praising me for what a beautiful woman of God I was. And it was always that phrase together, right? Woman of God. And this idea that like my gender was a reflection on how godly I was. Um, and it was only, I was only doing it right when I was doing it femme. Oh. And so it was those, oh. those things that had happened for years. And so when I started to show up to space where people were violating gender norms from up front at the church, it just broke some stuff open in me. And actually, I remember going to a play with my, with my small group. My Bible study went to a, a play about queerness and transness. And I, oh, I was annoyed. I was like, oh, we have other things to talk about, you know, I don't have time for this. I gave away my ticket and then my my spiritual mentor at the time was like, nope, you have mine now. You're going in. I'll talk to you about it afterward. And I sat in that play and I just, I just wept because I was like, shit, I think I'm really trans. Um, and I, it started really washing over me and I was like, I can't, I can't deny this anymore. And I, to have that happen in a church space, where loving Jesus and following Jesus requires you to confront yourself and see yourself for who you are. And to have a church space that facilitated my understanding myself as trans is, a, is an actual miracle. Yeah. And, and so I, I came to my, that, that spiritual mentor later and I was like, wow, you made me, why'd you make me do this? Um, and she was like, well, let's talk about this. <laughs> uh, and, and so it was really incredible. And so I, I actually found my transness in a church space. Um, and, and that just like paved the way for me to see myself in all of these different ways. But I could not have, I, I, I'm sure God would have made a way. God makes a way, right? Mm-hmm. But, but for me, the way that God made for me into my queerness and transness was to show me the stories and lives of people who were already doing it was to see myself reflected in the church, in community, in faithfulness, in worship, and in practice, and over time in scripture. And so that's oh. why story is so important to me, because I think that there are a lot of ideas floating out around there about, well, this is why the law says this, that, or the other. This is why homosexuality is wrong. This is why God can't abide this, that, or the other. But the stories of God's people show something fundamentally different. And the stories 
of worshiping communities and of lives changed and of, of the things that we pass on generationally through scripture and otherwise, those are the places of truth that we can see the work of God through queerness, uh-huh. through transness, through the work of liberation in the streets. And that can't be suppressed by any, you know, any biblical scholar or systematic theologian trying to dissect a few words on a page. Because the truth of God's liberating love is in the stories of God's people. Yeah. I think I made it to the end. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So tell us about Jonah. Actually, no. Tell us about the peacock first. And then tell us about your connection to Jonah. Yeah. So the peacock... I love this. So all that trauma that I was trying to suppress when I was an adolescent, it didn't go away when I found Jesus. I had different and better coping skills. I've been clean now for 15, 16 years. I, I lose track. Um, but, uh, but I needed to find other supports, and I did need to heal that trauma. And I've been doing that healing work for a long time, actually more intensively the last couple of years and interestingly, it's been a lot of that same visualization and prayer, um, mm-hmm. but through a um, a trauma-informed like therapy setting. Mm. And and it's been incredible. And one of the things that has come up for me in that imagery is the peacock. And I, you know, because I'll sometimes part part of this healing work. It's so wild. Um, uh, the the thing that has been most helpful to me is called CRM, the Comprehensive Resource Model. But it is, um, did you ever see Fight Club? And there's like uh-huh. the power animal. And they're very uh-huh. much making fun of it in that book and movie. But, um, but it actually is, it's a pretty um, profound technique, which is to, to bring, CRM would describe it differently, but I think it's bringing God into the space, but in a way that feels... Uh-huh more accessible. And so you have, you have an animal that you kind of visualize and imagine connecting with. And so I brought God into these spaces and I was always like, what's, what's the animal? What's the God, who are you sending me? And God sent me the peacock. And I was like, this is just not, this feels very left field to me. This is not what I would have imagined. Um, but I started researching and trying to learn what the peacock is about. And it turns out there's a bunch of beautiful mythology from all kinds of cultures around the peacock, um, but especially in Buddhism and India, the the peacock, uh, practically speaking, is used as kind of a guard animal. So if you have, if you you know, I think of it as this really fancy, you know, regal animal because peacocks are so beautiful. Um, but if you have a home and you can have peacocks just like roaming around the reason the main reason is actually because they eat poisonous spiders and snakes and so they protect the household from these poisonous animals and and the reason the peacock is able to do that is because it has a unique digestive system that is capable not only of resisting the poison in those animals which would kill other animals but of actually breaking it down and transforming it into nourishment, into food. 
and there's a lot of incredible mythology about the peacock and how they're able to do that and, and survive these toxins. But one of the key pieces is to say essentially that it is the poison itself that is broken down and transformed that turns into the iridescent beauty of the feathers of the peacock. And that the, pe- oh. the peacock is so beautiful and so regal and so unique because of that transformative work of taking toxic, poisonous um, material and transforming it into something uniquely beautiful. And I, I read that. I'm like sitting there reading that going, oh my gosh, this is what you want for us, God. This is what you want for us. You are telling us, you're telling all the trauma babies that we are peacocks and that you have given us everything we need in the Holy Spirit to digest, to break down, to transform the poison of our lives, the toxic interpretations of the world around us, the evils of oppression, to break it down and transform it into something uniquely beautiful and emerge on the other side proud and and perfect in your eyes. And... That felt like such a gift that, that God was saying, I am this and I am in you and we are in this together. And this thing that you think is going to kill you, you can break it down. You can transform it and emerge on the other side uniquely beautiful. So that's the peacock. And I, and I love it. I just want a black church shout right now. Like all I really <laughs> want to do is yes, just please. like, hey! Oh man! Ah, oh. okay. Tell us about Jonah. Yeah. Well, and so yeah. So the peacock is really a symbol for me of transforming trauma, um, but it's also the the tool that I bring to bear when I'm engaging scriptures that have been turned into toxic sludge. Because I think that the world abuses the word of God and uses it to abuse mm. God's people, and so we can yeah. transform those toxins into something nourishing and come out more beautiful than we could have imagined. So that's that's my guiding frame on the peacock. Jonah is my name. Um, it was not always my name. It was the name that I, it was my true name that I discovered um, along with my coming of age. And interestingly, I, I had the name Jonah and I knew the name Jonah before I could say out loud that I was trans. Um, mm-hmm. my, my, the name given to me at birth, thank you mom and dad, never fit. They knew it. I knew it. We all knew it. I went by nicknames. Um, and eventually I discovered Jonah. And it, it emerged actually while I was still in that early period of, of being clean. I think I had been clean for less than a year when I gave this like really, I was a part of a retreat weekend um, of people pursuing God. And, and it was a storytelling experience first and foremost. And they asked me to give the prodigal son story. Um, and it was a way of engaging the prodigal uh, and, and the story of leaving home and coming back um, from one's own narrative. And I, as I was writing and preparing to give this testimony of my own journey away from God and back, I realized that the story I actually connected more to was the story of Jonah. And at that time, it was this idea... Well, and I'll just, I'll summarize, I'll summarize Jonah real quickly. It's a short book. It's one of our earliest stories. It's definitely a metaphor and an allegory, um, in my opinion. 
I think trying to take it literally is, is not doing us a whole lot of good. But Jonah, um, Jonah is a person who has been called on by God to preach the gospel to, uh, to the people of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. And we'll get into it in a little bit why that's so complicated, but he, what we learn right away is he doesn't want to do it. So he's like, yeah, sure, God, no, cool, I'm totally headed to Nineveh, give me five, and then like runs in the opposite direction. So he, he gets to the shore, like he goes so far, he runs out of land. And he's like, yeah, I'd like to keep going away from this. Uh, I'm going to hop in a boat. So he gets passage on a boat, and the boat is going, and, and the waves are enormous, and all of a sudden it's storming and it's storming, and everybody on the boat is like, something is wrong. Like, somebody pissed off God. This is not okay. Um, we're going we're gonna to draw straws and see who gets the shortest straw. We're going to throw them over the boat because that's the only way to appease God. Something bad is going on here. And Jonah actually kind of admits, like, hey, guys, I kind of know it's me. And they're like, just draw straws. And he draws the short straw, and they're like, okay, it's you. Bye. (laughs) And throw him overboard. So Jonah is sinking into the depths of the ocean. And in the midst of this, Jonah thinks he's going to die. He's like, this is the end. The seaweed is wrapping around my legs. I am being pulled into the depths when along comes Uh, sent by God for Jonah's rescue, a big fish. And this massive fish swallows him up and he sits in the belly of this fish for three days while the fish is is swimming around. And that's where we get this beautiful prayer from Jonah describing what it means to be rescued from the depths of the ocean by, by God. And Jonah is like, you're right, God. I will do, I will do what you're asking of me. Um, Thank you for rescuing me. And the fish emerges on the shore and vomits Jonah out, covered in, you know, fish bile and seaweed and whatever. And he makes for Nineveh. And he goes to Nineveh, starts preaching the good word and the good news and the news of repentance and forgiveness. And people listen. Like, I don't know if Jonah's just like a really good preacher or if the people of Nineveh were really primed, but like he basically shows up to the town square, says y'all messed up, you better fix it. And immediately the entire city does. <laughs> and, and so God says, all right, you guys are in my good graces again. You know, I feel your repentance. I accept it. We're good. And Jonah is pissed. So Jonah, mad about his successful mission, marches out of the gates and sits outside the city and is basically like, God... I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were a forgiving God. I didn't want to be involved in this. Now you have forgiven Nineveh and, and I'm pissed. Mm -hmm. And so God springs up this tree, this little bush almost to, to give Jonah shade. And Jonah's like, Oh, this is really nice. And then God causes that shade to wither. And Jonah's like, I should just die right now (laughs) Jonah is drama this is one of the things I connected to Jonah is real drama and God's like so hey the tree's a metaphor I'm trying to teach you a lesson like it's my tree I sprung it up I took it away what are you going to do about it and like can you get on board and that's where the story ends 
with Jonah just like pouting in the desert, not able to get on board. So when I was in my early 20s and recovering from heroin and trying to find my way back to God, this is what I connected to. And most of all, I connected to Jonah chapter 2, which is the prayer that Jonah prays from the belly um, of like, I, was, I felt death coming for me and you sent something to save me. But one of the toxic interpretations of the scripture that I held on to at the very beginning was basically that God was trying to coerce me to do something. And I felt at the time, God has a call on my life. I don't really want to be alive anymore because it's really painful, but if I'm still alive, it must be for God's purposes. And I have been running away and denying that, but the only way, the only way through this is to just do it. So I better accomplish my purpose for God. I better find my Nineveh. And then maybe I can throw in the towel after that. But in the early days of connecting to this story, I really thought that God was a God who might coerce us into doing God's will. And I thought, surely this is for my own good, but it was still very much a God's going to corner me, God's going to not let me run away. And in the years since, I've realized that that's actually a pretty toxic interpretation of an abusive, bullying God who pursues us not for our own well-being, but for God's gain and God's purposes, who uses us like pawns and will harm us if we don't. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But over time, taking that peacock lens and saying, you know, what is this? What's really here? How do we break it down? One of the first things that really changed it for me was reading um, Miguel de la Torre, did, has a great book on Jonah. He's a great theologian in general and biblical scholar. And, uh, and he was the first to really bring to my attention that Jonah had a lot of good reasons for not wanting to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which was oppressing Jonah and Jonah's people. And so God was asking Jonah to go to his oppressors, go to the very people harming him at the capital, at the center of that uh, mechanism of, of oppression and evil, and ask them to repent so that God might forgive them. And Jonah didn't want to do that. Jonah didn't want to be a part of the salvation of his oppressors. Jonah didn't want to be a part of 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 God granting forgiveness to the people who had harmed and killed his own people. And I understood that. And I understood that there were there were so many people who understood that even more than me at a fundamental level that like no. we we don't want to be a part of of salvation for all. It is a lot easier to be a part of salvation for me and mine, especially if you're connecting to other oppressed people. But like this is This is us saying, you know, I do need to go to those spaces who have caused the most harm and invite them to repentance in order that they may be forgiven and welcomed back into the family of God with me. That is dangerous and painful. And why would you make me do that, God? And so when I think about what it means for me as somebody who survived childhood abuse... What I think about for me as somebody who has been uh, bullied and pushed and coerced into the very back corners of my closet, what I think about it for, when I think about it 
for my community and for so many people I love who have been victims of systemic racism and ableism and cruelty and evil, and that God might be at some level asking each of us to bring a message of liberation and salvation to the very people who have harmed us our entire lives. Mm. That's hard. (laughs) And I understand Jonah. And I understand why he's pouting. And I understand why he's mad. And I understand why he's like, I'm going to bounce because I want nothing to do with this. But I also understand why running from that task, why running from forgiveness can root the pain more deeply inside of me. Hmm. That running from God in that moment is also about anchoring um, the pain and abuse into my body and saying, I refuse to let this go. I refuse Hmm. to, to invite salvation into this because it might mean salvation for, for my abusers. And, and so running from that at that level, paired with this memory that I had that, that when I was doing heroin, I was running from life itself and from the spirit of God because yeah. it was too painful because I might have to confront some of these things. I saw that my whole journey really had been a, you know, a beeline for Tarsus, a, 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 mm-hmm. a journey away from the Nineveh God had called me to because it was too scary and too painful. And I think that when I engage the text, we do have to take some liberties to understand in a meaningful way. And the the folks that wrote it are very clear that the storm in the sea was caused by God. But I'm just going to disagree with them on that one. Because I think that the trauma and turmoil and pain and terror of running from one's call from one's being, running from God, running from forgiveness and salvation and liberation is is the storm that can kill you, invites all of that in. And I don't think that that's God's will for us. I think it is something that happens, something that's in the world. And, And so when you find yourself in the depths of the ocean and the only thing left for you is to surrender to death or to cry out to God, and you can't cry out to God because your lungs are full of water, and God sends a fish to come scoop you up, it is just because of God's relentless love that says, I see, I see that you're running. I'm coming for you. And that's not a threat. That's a rescue mission. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and it might take until your body is limp uh, at the bottom of the ocean for God to, to get your permission to scoop you up and take you home. And that's what it took for me. I was literally dying. I almost died a couple of times. And God scooped me up and and allowed me to sit in that space for a little while and just pray and try and make sense of it and reconnect. And then spit me back out on land covered in fish bile and seaweed and offered me a path back to the person I was created to be. And, and there are times that it went marvelously. <laughs> and there are times when I got pouty and weird. But that invitation back to the self is what God has always wanted for us. And it can be incredibly healing. 
and it can be hard. And we can learn from Jonah's bad attitude and try and do better. But we can also know that God is going to love Jonah and work through Jonah and keep speaking to Jonah, even as he's pouting in the sun a few steps from his call. That's what I got. Jonah, thank you for sharing so beautifully. And I think that this podcast, Jonah and the Peacock, is going to be an opportunity for many of us to share the ways in which scripture has affirmed us, challenged us, and brought the best out of us, even as the world has tried to use it to erase and destroy us. And um, I'm grateful for your courage to open this conversation. Um, And so I'm looking forward to all of the ways that we're going to hear stories of folk who are just trying to live out this following Jesus thing in the ways that are most authentic um, and that are holding together all of the pieces as best as possible so that we all uh, find liberation together. And I, I think that that's, for me, that's some of the things that I'm thinking about as I even reflect on that story of Jonah, this sense that your liberation is caught up in my liberation. And I can't get unstuck until I speak truth to you that helps you get unstuck. Um, you know, and, uh, so again, thank you for facilitating this conversation. Um, I think people are going to be quite blessed, um, by this podcast series, Jonah and the Peacock. I hope so. I think the power of storytelling is one of the fundamental spiritual gifts that God gave to God's people and Uh. that the beauty of story and the danger of story is that it can be told in any number of ways, but that if we keep telling the stories over and over again with new truths and new insight and from new perspectives, we will get closer to God and we will heal um, from the wounds that are self-inflicted and generational. And I, I, I believe in us as a people to emerge with those beautiful iridescent feathers. I do. Thanks for listening to this episode of Jonah and the Peacock. We hope you enjoyed it. This show is presented by The Liberation Project and produced by Wesley's Revival.